0: Back, how you doing? I'm very well. You? I'm doing good. So my fifth guest, something like that. I, Mr. Ian McAteer.
1: That's it. You got it. Now I got the pronunciation. Yeah. I was yeah. a little
0: bit worried about that one. Yeah. So uh, we've known. Well, I've known you a little while, of five-ish years or something like that. I was um, thinking
1: about it actually. It was just about just about six years ago. I think I there met you, you for go. the first time.
0: Yeah. Nice. And I'm rocking the. Uh, I got the fancy chair out today, which I got from you guys, which is fantastic. So got all the swag. Yeah. So tell us about yourself, Ian. Where you are from? You're clearly Canadian based on your accent. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
1: just just born above Nova Scotia, about 37,000 <laughs> feet up in the air. But no, I'm uh, originally from Ireland. Um, I grew up in Donegal, uh, the northwest tip of Ireland. And uh, I'm, I'm in Canada now since 2010.
0: T uh, Yeah, so okay
1: I moved in 2010 and before that I left Ireland in 2002 and I went to the UK um, so yeah it's uh, I've had a bit of a, a variety of um, experience in my in my life so um, when I graduated the equivalent of high school in Ireland I uh, went into the medical device business so um, and spent a few years doing that in Ireland and the UK and then I moved to I met and married a Canadian, and I moved to Canada then in 2010. And uh, since then, I've been in the liquidation business here in Canada. And then I've um, recently uh, opened a a company for affordable, sustainable housing in Canada. So just that's a rough idea snippet of where I'm at.
0: Yeah. Well, since I got an Irishman on, I kind of want to, if it's okay with you, I kind of want to take you back a little bit to talking about ireland and whatnot so we recently um so i go to so as you know i go to university in guildford uh southern england and uh we were just talking about the troubles and i'm shockingly ignorant i guess well probably not so much i guess because you don't really hear about that here at least we're pretty unaware of of all that was going on considering that was not that long ago um and actually in guildford there was uh two different bombings um, by the IRA. So Guilford's got a bit of history there as well. And so now you grew up, would this be Northern Ireland or this would be Ireland? Uh, Johnny Gall, where I grew up as a kid, um,
1: is a county in Ulster. So it's one province in Ireland. So it's in the Republic of Ireland. Okay. Uh, so there's 26 counties in Ireland and then there's six in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland would be part of the island of Ireland, but a member of um, the United Kingdom. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the troubles, uh, thank God we have uh, a peace accord in Northern Ireland currently. So there's been, I think, about 21 or 22 years of peace. So there was a Good Friday Agreement signed between um, the Irish and the English government. Um, and uh, a Northern Ireland executive was established um, to represent both communities, whether Catholic or Protestant, uh, nationalists or unionists in, in Ireland or in Northern Ireland. Uh, and. There was a referendum on the island of ireland and i think 97 percent of people that voted in that referendum voted for the peace accord and um, so there were several countries involved in that um, uh, and there were several thousand people uh, killed or injured during the trolls and um, so growing up as a as a child i, I turned 43 yesterday so i um, i remember uh, various um, incidents in the north uh, growing up as a child um, but as i said in the last 21 years um 21 or 22 years there's been a, a stable peace there and um, unfortunately there was uh Guildford is um known as a uh, there were a few uh, terrorist attacks there and mm-hmm. um, and you know from the point of view of I, I remember talking to my grandmother when i was very young and she would have um had you know, everyone wakes up in the morning and they breathe the same air. So who are you to judge him? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I come from a loving background, and it it doesn't matter who you were or what side of the fence you were on or what religion you were brought up with. Uh, you were a human being in Ireland, and that um, and through that peace process in Northern Ireland, um, two communities working together. Now, I, I would want I would like to say um, that there is a a huge debt of. Um, Debt of gratitude to the U.S. government at the time, um, not only did the Irish and the U.K. government and the political parties, both north and south of the border, uh, partake in that Good Friday Agreement. Um, Senator Jim Mitchell was uh, fundamental in that peace accord, along with a lady called Mo Molan. Um Then you have two: you have a nationalist and um, uh, nationalist and unionist politician, David Trimble. Um, Representing the union side, uh, and jeepers, um, I'm having a moment—a forty-three-year-old moment. But that the introduction of Jim Mitchell uh, and the U.S. Uh, in that peace peace accord was vital. Um, so the, you have a you have a a generation of uh, people in the north that have known peace only. Mm-hmm. So anyone under 22 years of age um, would would know peace. So long may it continue. Uh,
0: so. Yeah. Well, it's funny because obviously once you start looking into history, and I'm reading a lot of, like I got the Gulag Archipelago. Yeah. I just started reading that, and and I got a couple Holocaust books. So a lot of enjoyable reading I'm I'm doing <laughs> these days. But um, it was funny. One of the things I just kept thinking to myself was like how lucky – my generation is—we don't know anything other than just pretty much complete peace. Even nine eleven was—we were a little kid, like I would have been f- five, four, you know. So I would have been very young for that, and you know that war was fought in the—you know—still fighting in the Middle East. So like, we just—we've never gone through any strife, really. And I don't think you know—it's just pretty mind blowing when you think about it, because that's pretty impressive really you know well,
1: if you look at if you look at various conflicts um across the world mm-hmm. i mean it's always been um there's no winners in in any war no, in of any battle not. and you know the the beauty um the beauty of the island of ireland is such that um you know during that troubles like, it, it, people um one of the memories i have is the fact that you can deceive be desensitized against bad information so there was a period of time where if there was one person murdered in the north it didn't hit the headlines right. uh, in the national press it would hit page six or seven on the you know so that um, there would need to be a larger a large-scale uh, tragedy to to resonate with anyone on the island and that's that's where human life um, and the loss of human life, for me, is, um, is tragic. Uh, that people can turn around and say, oh, it's only one person murdered or it's only two people gone in that, in that uh, bombing, um, rather than the fact that somebody has uh, illegally taken the, the life of another human being. Um, so I'm very grateful um, as, a, as an Irish national now to know that there are people in Ireland, not to not know troubles in the North uh, and just to know peace in the island of Ireland. That doesn't mean that there's not work to be done. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there's not a discussion in relation to whether Ireland would become a United Ireland further down the the track. Um, But those discussions need to take into consideration both sides of the community, both in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. and how best to work as to respect the the wishes and the um and the belief systems of both sections or of all sections of the community and for years ireland has been known like i'm sitting here in in north burnaby in canada uh, having lived in ireland having lived in the uk in england uh, and having lived in canada i am an immigrant and so i am very fortunate that the The English um, welcomed me and allowed me to work in their country for eight years, and I'm very fortunate to have worked and lived uh, in Canada. So for years, the Irish uh, population has been transit or has has gone all over the world to work. And um, back in two thousand and eight, during the economic uh, challenges that we all faced, uh, the construction industry in Ireland shut down, and Anyone that was involved in the construction industry in Ireland moved overseas because there was no work in Ireland for them to do. So it's like a roller coaster that there are there steps <laughs> and uh, different times and dates in our history where we as a nation have had to uh, either welcome people in to work in Ireland or to go away and look for work. Um, so, you know, sitting here in North in North Burnaby, I'm, I'm very fortunate and I'm very... Um, very proud to be an Irish person and one of the things that was said this year uh, th- by our Prime Minister or our, it's called a Taoiseach um, Leo Varadkar who is the son of a, a, an Indian uh, gentleman who is openly gay as the head of our uh, That's pretty political organisation um, he, he uh, he's quoted uh, on St Patrick's Day this year when he was talking to the nation in our current uh, Covid-19 situation where he hopes that in years to come when society looks back at the worst of times that the Irish nation acted in the best of times and um, so let let them look back at Ireland as a nation to say we've done the best we can with the resources that we have mm-hmm. so uh, and that's been you know you, you notice you too for instance uh, Bono and U2 donating 10 million dollars worth of personal protective equipment to the current um outbreak and using his political or his sorry not political his reputation as a member of u2 to facilitate um getting equipment and supplies into the healthcare professions that 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 was needed um, so yeah it's a, it's an interesting one but i'm a proud irishman
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's funny because um a little bit off topic but i, I suppose you, you must be familiar with conor mcgregor yeah so the the ufc fighter and one of the things that is really interesting about how, like, Ireland has really changed the scope of the UFC in that Connor's one of the biggest stars and probably of all time in the UFC, at least. And Brazilians were always known as being, like, hardcore, ridiculous fans really supporting their own people. And there's a lot of phenomenal Brazilian fighters. And when Conor started to get hot, when he started... Kind of get and when as soon as he got into the UFC, he was pretty popular right away. He was pretty good at at getting that support. And one of the crazy things that pretty much everyone commentates on, like in in the UFC community, is just how supportive the Irish people are. And that type of support really grew, helped to grow the sport, you know, in Europe and, and just in general. Like they would show up in Vegas and it would just be. Tens of thousands of and they would fly in from Ireland to watch Conor fight, and they would take over the city. So it was really, it's really I, cool I that, that they.
1: I, I think that's a national pastime. Yeah. Uh, any <laughs> Irish sporting person, uh, all we need as a nation is uh, somebody to turn up, and we'll we'll turn up on their behalf. Yeah. Um. You know, I talk about Conor, but like back in nineteen ninety four, um, uh, pretty much the most of the, the population that was able to to get on a plane. Went to the United States to support Ireland in the nineteen ninety four World Cup soccer World Cup, um, and the stories behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, seven and a half thousand people decided to go and watch Ireland play Israel in Tel Aviv. Yeah, in a European qualifier over an Easter weekend, where you had seven and a half thousand Irish fans turn up uh, to a pool party, <laughs> uh, and all of the all of the the local the locals were wondering what happened. Do you know? Uh, Connor absolutely is a is a force to be reckoned with and you know it's a I wouldn't say a rag to riches uh, tale but in in relation to the UFC brand mm-hmm. it is you know he um, his life is is such that he he's um, uh, he has become uh, their flagship and mm-hmm. um, is he uh, the the golden goose of the art for every Irish person uh, probably not yeah and um, there's you know Depends which side of the fence you're on mm-hmm. in relation to whether you like UFC or you don't. And mm-hmm. um, as a brand ambassador, he he has made UFC. I yeah. mean, if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for him, um, it wouldn't be in any way as
0: big as it is now. No, Absolutely not. Um,
1: but the Irish as a nation just need an excuse to go away and have a party. <laughs> um, and that you know, so if he if he decided tomorrow to play in the top of Book Timbuktu. <laughs> You guarantee there'll be an Irish person there uh, (laughs) supporting him. And like back in 1994, before, um, you know, the stories told about um, businesses lending their staff the money to afford the plane ticket to go and watch Ireland play uh, an interest-free loan as part of your wage packet. Um, There's stories told about um, people getting on the wrong plane with the wrong ticket just to get to the next, um, you know, to barter a plane ticket in a pub the night before, so I was getting on as Ian McAteer. No, I wasn't. I was getting on as Joe Bloggs. But it was before, You know, it didn't matter what ticket you had as long as it was a ticket on the plane. Yeah. Um, and that was the whole nation shut down. Um, you know, it it happened a few years ago that Ireland were very successful in cricket. Okay. And, you know, there was a great photo or a great cartoon uh, put in the Irish Times, which is the national newspaper in Ireland, where. You know, it said Monday, no one knew anything in Ireland about cricket. Wednesday, everyone knew all the rules of cricket. And Thursday, we were the world experts in cricket. <laughs> so, you know, that, the process of a week that the yeah. whole nation got on board and we're, we're uh, backing that cricket team. Um, so, you know, uh, absolutely. Um, we'll, you know, we've had brand ambassadors before. We've had some great runners. We've had um, some great boxers uh, in the past. Uh, Barry McGuigan uh, from the north was a, a huge boxer when I was growing up and um, uh, we're big in equestrian sports as well and um, we even had a, a horse once uh, who got stripped of a gold medal in the Olympics for taking drugs and <laughs> um, so you know what I mean there's a there's always sport and Irish people yeah it's an excuse to go away and, and have a party but that Tel Aviv uh, experience that I was talking about where you had seven and a half thousand people at a 1-1 draw in Tel Aviv we all we all went en masse to an Irish pub in Tel Aviv and all hung out in a, in a pub that was probably a 1,000 square feet but <laughs> 7,500 people turned up for a drink afterwards to celebrate yeah. the fact that we drew. You know, so, yeah, any, any excuse, we'll get on a plane and go and, and any sport, doesn't yeah. matter whether it's USC or boxing or whatever.
0: Well, it's funny because it's such a sm- – like, whenever you think of the UK, like whenever that term's thrown out, pretty much everyone thinks England. You know, you're not thinking Scotland. I always forget about Wales, which is not good because I'm in law school. So you got to remember, you know, got to remember Wales. But, uh, you know, people don't really, because it's just so small. And I guess, you know, England kind of sucks all the oxygen away anyway. So all the kind of attention goes to them. But, I mean, just like how you are saying, but, I mean, my experience is with the UFC and and being a fan of that. And, man, like, if it wasn't for, but you need Conor. But it was the support that Connor brought. And and that support, and that's what really, you know, it's a, like they changed the course of MMA. You know, one country, small country that people forget about. Well, you, know. you have
1: to remember, though, I mean, we've done that for UFC, but we've done that across the across the world. Mm-hmm. I
0: mean,
1: can you mention another country that celebrates their national day in every country in the world? Yeah, I good think point. We're the only one that I can think of that. Uh, you know, not even the Fourth of July is celebrated in every country. Oh, the God US. No. no. <laughs> so, but the seventeenth of March, St. Patrick's Day, who yeah. is a Welsh patron saint, actually. So the patron saint of Ireland was Welsh. Oh, there you go. All right. So that's a way of you remembering the Welsh. Yeah. Uh, and they're great rugby players. So never mm-hmm. forget them in a in a rugby scenario. Um, but it's uh, from that point of view, we've we've always tended to hit above our weight. Right. Um, and back when, like historically, uh, we. There were seven and a half million people lived in ireland <laughs> before the famine and um, there's four and a half million people in the republic and about a million and a half in northern ireland so we're still below what we wow. were in 1847 but a lot of irish people emigrated and left to go to um you know to liverpool is a huge irish community uh, to england uh, to the states to canada uh. and those communities then have i think it's something in the region of 40 million people in the states claim irish descent right so it's a huge political lobby in the united states that may not have been born in ireland but claim that they are irish right mm-hmm. and they are um so you know the, the fact that we've gone to every corner of the world and helped establish the communities and the um and the businesses in in, in each country um but with that um like we call it the, the word in irish is diaspora for somebody who is irish who is left and we invited them years ago to come back to ireland you know so the whole campaign around st patrick's day is to focus on um, tourism is a huge part of our economy um and that you know the brand to convince national governments to light up their monuments in green on st patrick's day all over the world to celebrate the irishness of their local communities is is huge, mm-hmm. and that's the that's the Irish political uh, movement. That's the Irish Tourism Board, uh, Board Folger, uh, but it's a brand like uh, Ireland is a brand in itself. And we, we've had musicians through the years. We've had poets, playwrights, all punching above their weight. And um, one of the UN, like one of our um, female presidents of Ireland, um, Mary Robinson, went on to become um, a UN ambassador for uh, human rights and um, so we've always focused on um, like back to the guilford commentary earlier on like there were there were uh, injustices done uh, and people were sentenced to for crimes that they didn't commit and that's part of that healing process that both sides of the community um in northern ireland and in ireland have gone through over the years but it's it's important um, that, as I said earlier on, I'm a proud Irish man. I was proud when Leo Varadkar uh, spoke to the nation on the 17th of March, saying that when you look back, that they wanted during the worst of times that we did the best we could, I'm paraphrasing there. But that, that to me is the spirit of the Irish. What, what can we do in times of crisis to help? And um, where can we be of service to other people? Um and that's that's a very proud uh, char- characteristic of being Irish and it's one that I'm very happy to to have.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and and I know we when Brexit was taken off, when I was back from uh, university visiting home, I know we had a because I'd come in the shop and see and we'd have some interesting conversations and I imagine definitely being an Irishman and certainly for me just kind of looking at the whole situation, which was just top to bottom, just a goon show, <laughs> This is probably the best word to describe as horrible, um, just idiotic and, and just not just not well thought out whatsoever. And so I imagine for Ireland, I know Scotland was just losing their minds, and they still are. It's not really resolved yet. Um, with Brexit, I mean, I imagine f- for the Irish people, I mean, frustrating is one word for it, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose my, my,
1: um, my thoughts on Brexit um, is that it's a mistake. Yeah. Um. So, you know, the, the memes that you see on social media, there was a picture of the map of Ireland, and it said, Clowns to the right of me, Jokers to the left here, I am stuck in the middle <laughs> yeah. with you. Um, so, uh, from a trading point of view, like, I, I can only speak for myself, but looking at it from a trading point of view, I can see them going bankrupt over it. Oh yeah. Um, that, um, they can't, but it, from a brand image point of view, it proved that having a catchy slogan, um, get Brexit done, was all that was said during the campaign and it was catchy and people were fed up of listening to it and therefore, um, I remember staying up late and watching it live as the results came in here. Mm-hmm. Um, England, England, and the UK have been a huge trading partner for Ireland over the years. Now, there's opportunities in every scenario. So there's opportunities for the Irish economy uh, after this. So the financial services leaving London and going to other European capitals is massive. You know, a huge proportion of the GDP of the UK is financial services. Now, if they can't have a passport to, to trade in Europe uh, because they've left, then it's... Um, there are advantages, whether that be for Dublin or for Kerry, or whether it be for Frankfurt or Greece. Um, there are opportunities in, in every scenario. I I personally can't see the advantages of them leaving a trading block that is represented by 28 countries um, and being able to approach other world countries and do trading relationships with them at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. Um. Brexit for me is um, is going to make uh, people in the UK um, financially worse off, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't heard anything. It, I suppose during the, the 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 whole campaign and the information that was given to the public, both in Ireland and in 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 Europe, uh, in the UK, uh, it proved to me that. Um, in the media, there's no real comeback if somebody turns around and says something that's inaccurate. So, there was a claim that uh, 350 million a week was being spent on Europe uh, to be a member of the European Union, and that could be given back to the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK. That is not a number that existed, and mm-hmm. that is not a number that has been given back to the NHS. Um, there were claims that um, the that they would take control of immigration uh, now while that is a, a, a hot topic mm-hmm. uh, in relation to a lot of things um, the fundamental like if you take that national health service which is under strain at the moment and mm-hmm. um, the proportion of people that weren't born in the uk that work in the national health service is 37 percent yeah right? so if you then decide that you're taking control of your borders and you you restrict the free movement of people which was one of the core Elements to membership of the European Union if you were born or worked in the European Union, that you had free movement of people across that 28 country block. Um, so if if you went down that road and said I'm going to stop with the, the immigration uh, or should control the borders in a, in a higher way, that particular um, health service would crumble, uh, would stop functioning because where are you going to get the staff uh, that are currently working there? Um, so there were, there were various points in that whole debate where misinformation was given. It also then, uh, as you said earlier on, the United Kingdom is four countries. So it's England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland voted to stay. Scotland voted to stay. Mm-hmm. Wales voted to leave and England voted to leave. London voted to stay. Yeah. If you, if you look at that as a... As Interesting, a right? right? Yeah. <laughs> so there are... How do you then go about doing the best for all of those people? um and uh to it was like shooting yourself in the foot i believe oh uh, yeah leaving and it's there were there were arguments for and against but it it became very um kind of it's us. you're on that side or you're on that side Mm -hmm. and again it didn't it um for me it didn't take into consideration what's best for for people yeah it was a in my opinion it was a political party Making a political statement, trying to secure um, uh, the rights to govern uh, a nation, and um, and it can be, can it be? I would I would go back to David Cameron and the whole introduction of that referendum as a point where he was just trying to make a political point to his Conservative Party at the mm-hmm. time to remain in power, heading the Conservative Party, so uh did the referendum need to take place in the first instance i don't believe it did mm-hmm. i don't believe that it 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 could have been offered it didn't need to be offered to the to the public uh, as a um i hope it works out well for them they've made a decision like even now it's uh, are they going for a cliff uh towards a cliff edge um, they are due to have a trading relationship secured with 27 members of the european union by the end of december um, I don't believe that's possible. If it took them three and a half years mm-hmm. to get to where they got to, um, I don't believe that in a year from the result of Brexit saying that they're going to leave, that they can have a full trading relationship across every avenue. And um, there, for example, um, the Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, um, that. Each department, like the Department of Agriculture, the um, work together, uh, both north and south of the border, like free movement of cattle across the border. So if you have one regime in the north and one regime in the south, uh, how can that work? Mm-hmm. You have people living on the border of Northern Ireland who may live in the republic but work in the north. Right. So how would you um, factor that in? There are concerns in, on the European side of it where um, Ireland would be the, uh, a member of the 27 countries and England would not be. So how would we um, sort out products for uh, Ireland or are they suitable for the UK or vice versa? So have the UK changed a practice in manufacture that doesn't sit well with the Europeans and therefore that product isn't uh, manufactured in a, in a way that is allowed in to be consumed in Ireland. So Mm -hmm. there's there's a huge um, amount of debate and. Are the skill sets or the uh, in government to be able to get that done? Um, If I was Boris Johnson sitting there now in the current climate, I would pitch for time and say, you know what, we're sitting in a in a situation of a global pandemic and I need more time. Mm -hmm. and therefore, uh, let us park this for a while. We'll keep trading as if we're in Europe and we'll revisit this in a couple of years time. Um, so I hope it works out for them, no matter what way it goes. I think they've made an incorrect decision, but that's my personal opinion. Democracy is such that um, if a referendum is given to a population and a result comes in, that result needs to be, uh, to be accepted and, um, yeah, so it's uh, I, I feel badly for them. And I, I feel badly for it it will it will cause economic strain in Ireland as well. Like our biggest trading partner is now leaving. So mm-hmm. it will it will add extra cost to doing business. Um so I, I hope it works out for everyone.
0: Well, and it's like when you say about Canada, when when the US sneezes, Canada gets a cold. Right? You know, it's that same idea that, you know, when when your number one trading partner and and the cultural and social influence that they have on, you know, just social attitudes and infrastructure and all that, when they go away, that's problematic. And it was really funny, too, because the whole referendum, that was, the, that was a political flop because there was actually, in order constitutionally, they don't need the public's opinion to do, to stay or to leave. The government can just come up with that themselves. There was no need for a referendum, and from the looks of it, all it was was, we'll put the vote out there. We don't think they'll agree to it. And then they ultimately agreed to it. And then kind of like how you said, which is once you put it out there and you give people the, the option to vote, well, if you go back on it now, if they say, okay, we got to leave and the government goes, oh, I don't know, we're, we're okay, we're just kidding. That's, well, it's career suicide for the whole, for the whole party. That, that's it. Because you're going back on your word. You're supposed to represent the people. And if the people say, we want X, you kind of have to go along with it. Otherwise, you know, then you're in, in danger of just turning into, you know, some Soviet-era state where you just do whatever the hell you want.
1: Well, it's, you know, the the fact that it can be tracked back to uh, David Cameron uh, offering the Conservative Party the referendum uh, to keep power for an extra 10 or 11 months. Um If it was Labour running the government at the time, or if it was the Lib Dems in the UK running um, the government at the time, that referendum wouldn't have even been offered uh, out there. Um, If you look at the result, when when it happened, the Leave side of the argument and the Remain side of the argument, um, I felt it was appropriate that politicians were allowed... um, uh speak to whatever side of the argument they were on so mm-hmm. they weren't they weren't tied down by party political um affiliation so if you were conservative you had to say that we're voting remain or you you had to vote leave um, however when the result happened the the leave campaign that um took place that a lot of their spokespeople then left it and in again my personal opinion I felt that uh when the result came in uh, a lot of the leave element didn't believe that it was going to go through. Yeah. And didn't believe that it was going to uh, that the public would vote for mm-hmm. a leave out of the European bloc. And they they were using the referendum as a personal uh, a personal way of building their profile up, whether that be on the political front, <coughs> sorry, political front, or um, using it for uh, business interests. There are some high-profile uh, examples of where, like uh, Mr. Dyson, uh, the gentleman behind the Dyson brand, he would have voted to um, uh, to leave. Um, he was one of the first com- uh, companies to leave uh, the UK once that vote came in. So the whole of the Dyson brand, instead of paying the tax now in the in the UK, they're now based in Singapore. So. While politically he added his voice to the leave campaign, mm-hmm. that business has upsticks and left, so the the taxation or the tax element, the tax dollar to the UK exchequer is gone, right? So like there are several instances where that has happened. Um, there will be there will be advantages for the UK in if you know I'm not saying that Brexit and the fact that they're leaving won't have opportunities for them. Absolutely, it will. And. Um, for me seeing those opportunities i don't believe that they outweigh um the fact of remaining in europe versus mm-hmm. leaving i but the decision has been made and it, it's gone but the the tax dollar like where the money comes into the exchequer uh, financial services is a huge contributor to the tax revenue for the the inland revenue in the uk and um, th- that's smashed you know if you want to do business in europe you're going to have to have a european headquarters Therefore, the taxable dollars is going to take place in a European city other than London. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, with businesses going overseas, the whole car manufacturing uh, industry in the UK seems to be going belly up, right? No investment has gone into um, any car manufacturing plants in in the UK since the whole referendum came on board. That um, international dealers have turned around and said, we're gone. You know they're not using Brexit as a as the reason politically. They they didn't want to be associated with that decision and saying it's a Brexit result that we're moving. But you know there have been closures um, of car manufacturing plants uh, to other European countries purely over the uncertainty of how um, business was going to be done afterwards, what the import levies, what any potential duties on those car parts would be. Um, so, like for me, I could talk for hours and hours and hours in relation to Brexit and what my personal opinions are. I believe it's wrong, and um, I believe it's democratic. So the decision was made. So uh, it has to be, um, it has to be accepted. Uh, and I hope that it works out for for everyone involved, um, but to say that it was needed, it wasn't. To say um, the advice that was on from all the European partners from. The outset of this, before the referendum was even mentioned, was please don't do this. There are ways to fix the um, your problems that you see with Europe as an institution of 28 member states. There there are mechanisms within the European structure to fix anything that you think is wrong with those structures. Um, but it's always easier to do the work when you're a member
0: mm-hmm. rather than when you're on the outside. so. That's actually a good spot. I need a quick break. Okay. So that was like a 30 minute break, but it'll be two, two second, two second edits, quick edits. (laughs) Um, so just trying to think. So, uh, so, so I didn't realize, so with the, I knew that you were involved with the medical supply equipment industry there. Um, but you got into that really quick that you said right after high school was what you said.
1: I I left the equivalent of high school in Ireland uh, when I was 18. So, uh, and I went to university at night, so part-time okay. in the evening. And I joined a company in Ireland called and Brown. Um, they were a laboratory and medical device business, so supplying the Irish market. And I ended up staying with them until I moved to Canada. Right. So I started with them in 1995 when I was <laughs> we'll 18. Have, yeah. And I finished employment with them uh, in 2020. Uh, so that kind of, uh, um, I started off, it was a small enough uh, company in, in Ireland. I worked with, um, my first ever boss was a gentleman by the name of Peter Woods. And I'm still in contact with Peter. Like I, I had a call with him this morning uh, in relation to another project that we're working on at the moment. So, um, you know, uh, I left um, or he sold BM Brown to an Irish PLC group called DCC, and they merged it with another entity in Ireland called Fanon Healthcare. And they were, um, I learned a lot. My first job with them was credit control, so chasing money. So I learned every excuse in the business for non-payment. You know, the cheque <laughs> is in the post, there's no stamp on the envelope, there's only yeah. one signature on the cheque. Um, there's no proof of delivery with it. Like anything that, you know, my, my hamster died <laughs> and I needed to take three days compassionate leave in order to be able to write the check to pay it. so all of those it was a great grounding and a great understanding of business and then at night I did a Bachelor of Business Management in um, the Institute of Technology and Talent so in West Dublin and that allowed me uh, work and go to university at night um, and start paying my way and I left that credit control department I went to Customer service. I went into uh, engineering services, um, and then I, I left and I went to um, to the UK. We had a smaller operation in the UK, and that's where um, I I set down roots. Then so in two thousand and two, um, we went and we were we were supplying the NHS uh, anything from uh, like a bandage to uh, like keyhole surgery equipment to operating theaters to. MRI machines like they would uh, to a crutch to a, uh, to a wheelchair I mean some of the people and some of the interactions that I had back then uh, still ring true to in my day-to-day business here um, like I, I worked with a, a gentleman by the name of Pat Tracy for a few years and Pat would turn around to me and one of the tricks that he gave me was to read upside down Uh, So I'd take a newspaper and I'd read an article and then I'd turn it upside down and I'd read that article again. But it was a great tool for me in contract negotiation. So if I'm sitting opposite somebody and they're taking notes during our meeting, uh, if I can read what they're writing, then I'm in a better position. Uh, He also would throw uh, mathematical questions to me. You know, So how's the weather outside, Ian? And if the fella offered you $10,000 less than that, how would it affect your gross margin on that product? But to keep your mind sharp, mm-hmm. so that um, the art of negotiation, like I, one of my, one of the people that I've worked with is Jeff Schwartz, um, the liquidator here in Canada. And one of the things that Jeff has taught me is that the art of negotiation is that both sides of the argument are happy. So that um, you always leave money on the table for another person to make something of. So if you gouge that person and you take all of the money on that deal, that person is less likely to come back to you to buy something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but the medical background in, in Ireland and the UK allowed me to, um, to add value in my day-to-day business. So, you know, one of the one of the projects I worked on was a single-use cardiac bioptome. It goes in through your neck, down into your heart, takes a sample of your heart to check whether your heart has been accepted or rejected after a transplant surgery. Um, very niche market. Um, it, it was on the U- UK market as a reusable version where 29 patients could use it wow. and sterilise it and um, putting it to a single use reduced the risk of um, that sterilisation process. If you have 29 costs or patients using a particular piece and... Uh, a bit of human tissue is left in the thing that could be lodged into the next patient. Mm -hmm. So reducing the risk and hopefully improving patient outcomes was something that I was involved in. Um, We then offered uh, a service. So where uh, to to use private industry in a public environment. So selling uh, medical items into hospitals and using the private market expertise to bringing that product to point of use that was another company that that umbrella company dcc had was a company by the name of squadron medical in the uk and that allowed us do um just-in-time deliveries of um picking down to the lowest unit so if you wanted one swab out of a box of a hundred we would deliver one swab (laughs) to that nurse who needed it the next morning so that they came in the um automatic ordering you know, to, so to use private just-in-time expertise into the National Health Service in the UK. Um, so that I, I learned a lot, and I learned how um, how to operate um, a business on low margins, high volume, low margins, where a mistake could be the difference between making some money and not making money. Um, I when I moved to, to Canada then, uh, I did, at the start of that movement, try to get back into that same industry here in Canada. And I found that it was uh, union-based uh, here. Okay. Um, and I had never worked for a union organization. So I found it difficult to get a role within that medical supply business. Also, the work that we were doing with hospitals in, in the UK versus the hospital supply structure in Canada, at that time in 2020, the UK and Ireland were about 10 years ahead of the technology that we had introduced into that supply chain, about 10 years ahead of where Canada was back in 2020. So some of the concepts that I was talking about with that just-in-time service to deliver an item to point of use the following day or within a four-hour lead time was alien to some of those discussions back in 2020. So I uh, I swapped over then. I ended up, you know, it's funny how you land in things. and. Um, so from the medical device business um, and pharmaceuticals back in Ireland and the UK, I came to Canada and I um, I got involved for a couple of years with a non-profit, uh, the Celtic Festival here in Vancouver. So that's the St. Patrick's Day Parade and all the music events that took place over a 10-day period to promote uh, Irish culture um, in Vancouver. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years. And again, um, through through somebody I just met, um, Guy Arshambo was his name. Uh, he worked for Jeff Schwartz in a company called Direct Liquidation. And uh, it, it happened one afternoon, I was sitting there with Guy, and he got a call from Jeff uh, looking for help with a, a load of area rugs that he had bought in <laughs> from China. And uh, Guy had no staff to help him. So I had offered, I, I wasn't working the following day, and I said, but, gee, if, if you need help, um, you know, what time do I need to be there? And, um, and that's my first introduction to the liquidation business in Canada. And um, I went in and that sea can or like a sea container was there on the side of uh, Jeff's building in North Burnaby. And there was 2000 area rugs in, in that oh, can. Geez. So four <laughs> of us spent um, two days offloading that piece by piece and lifting it upstairs to a mezzanine floor area and setting that up as a carpet uh, liquidation um, sale. Uh, I ended up with 47 bruises um, <laughs> over those two days. Yeah. Um, I, I, I got in the shower that night, and I was rubbing off the, um, the dirt from the day's work, and I counted 27, and uh, <laughs> I wasn't counting the, the bruises that run my back, so I, I still haven't figured out how lifting an area rug front of me has yeah. given me a bruise <laughs> on my back but there was 20 of them there so 47 were counted those two days and um i found out that uh jeff had a reality tv show based around his life and his business of direct liquidation and i was asked then would i consider uh going and working for him which i i said yes to so i've been seven years with uh jeff and uh uh he's a man with a, a great heart but he um the he's a, a bit of a lunatic <laughs> um, i remember my the uh, to give an example my my dad um rang me one morning at four o'clock in the morning and he i i lifted the phone um so it's 12 noon in ireland and it's four o'clock in the morning uh, here in vancouver and i picked up the phone and i said uh, who's dead dad yeah, and he said no one's dead And what are you talking about? And I said, well, why are you ringing me at four o'clock in the morning? He said, oh, flip, I forgot about the time difference. but He says you're awake now, so, um, Fin you know, have a chat with me. So I said, okay. Grant. He said your sister Claire was over last night, and they were flicking through the TV, uh, the TV stations, and they come across a TV station in the UK, uh, Quest, and it was on the Sky provider. So my dad said, what, what's that show you said you're involved with now? And I said it's called a liquidator. He said, "Yeah." He said, "Are you okay?" And I said, "What do you mean? <laughs> Am I okay?" He said, "He looks like a lunatic." <laughs> and um, so, it, my experience with Jeff is that, from the reality TV show point of view, in my belief, it's the only one that I've come across that was real and not scripted. So everything that you see him do, he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything he's bought, he's bought. Like the, you know, um, it proved to me. That there's a there's a home for any item in the world Um, one of the second day i worked for jeff he asked me to throw away a three uh stainless steel metal shelving unit that had four legs on the bottom or four wheels on the bottom one had broken so there was three wheels uh three tier system of shelving and could i throw that in what i call a skip i think you might call it a garbage yeah, yeah. refuge yeah. it can at the back of his business so i wheeled this Three legged um, (laughs) shelving unit down to the the bin. And at that moment, a gentleman drove in in a pickup truck looking to pick up a mattress that he had purchased from Jeff. So I helped him lift in the mattress into his pickup truck. And he asked me, he said, How much is that uh, shelving unit that I was about to throw into the bin? And I said, Make me a fair offer. And he said, $40. So instead of me throwing that shelving unit into the bin, which I'd been asked to do, I brought Jeff back up to $40 and handed it to him and said, that's for the shelving unit. right?" So that proved to me that you know there is, such a, there is a market for people hoarding. There's mm-hmm. a market for mm-hmm. everything. Um, and I've come across some strange things. Like I've sold a, a fire truck. Um, <laughs> no, I had no, no ability to drive it. Um, I'd managed to sell it to an 82-year-old um, up in Buck Lake in Alberta. Wow! And he, but he bought it um, to lower the insurance premium on his property. To have a live pumper truck on his property, oh, wow! Uh, there was going to save him a bit of money. He also had a grandson who was sixteen, uh, who was a volunteer firefighter, and his idea was that he would rent out the fire truck to go around to the neighbors to cut their trees. Wow! And that once a year, this gentleman had a fire. Um, uh, he would invite his grandkids over and have a, a water fight. And that uh, for once in his life, he wanted to be the winner of that, uh, <laughs> that challenge. Yeah. So with the fire truck, he had us. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've Jeff's core business was furniture and mattresses. And, mm-hmm. um, but he will buy anything. So a bankruptcy and insurance claim, uh, as long as there's, there's money in it, he'll buy it. And, um, and then it was our job to go and sell it. But I believe that, uh, back to the what what is a sale like people buy people mm-hmm. they don't buy a product Yep. and um, so whether i sell i'm selling a fire truck or whether i'm selling a mattress or whether i'm selling you know the shirt that i have on my back like every single item i was just sitting here every single item i'm wearing i bought at a liquidation store i bought through jeff my socks my jeans my belt my t-shirt yeah uh, my t-shirt was used in a a, a tv show mm-hmm. um the shirt came from a sample sale for uh, Ted Baker there you go. Uh, and all the small shirts were left after the sample sale and we bought all of the remaining shirts and um, so uh, I find it very difficult now to buy in a normal retail environment mm-hmm. um, you know would I consider buying a pair of shoes for a hundred bucks absolutely no way um, if you offered me 10 pairs at $10 I might consider it yeah you know, it's um and with Jeff, like that, that um, the ability to to look at something and say, who who could buy it? Mm-hmm. What's think outside the box? Like we once bought ten thousand one punch holes. Right, <laughs> so to punch one yeah uh, one hole in a piece of 10, paper. ten thousand of them. Ten thousand of them, <laughs> and how we were going to uh, get rid of those, and we managed to. Um. Like I was reminded on the way in today to the podcast, uh, four years ago on Facebook, we were selling a NASA astronaut. Um, I was approached by a gentleman. Um, would, he, would I buy back an 11-foot giraffe that we sold him uh, five years ago? That was hand-carved in Kenya. <laughs> came Wow. In. Who wants to buy that? Yeah. Well, we didn't, ju- Jeff just didn't buy the one. He bought the giraffe. He bought leather elephants and animals. We sold all of it. So there's a home for everything. The trick yep. is to find that home and to find it quickly. Uh, he also told me um, or taught me that if you're going to take a loss, you take it early. So yep. if you make a mistake, you send it to auction You um, and then you, you suit up and you show up the next day for the next deal. You take your loss. Get rid of it. Um but yeah, I've had some uh, some funny experiences with him mm-hmm. uh, online.
0: Yeah. That, talking about that reminds me of a very profound quote from Ricky from Trailer Park Boys. And he goes, The quote is, One man's garbage is another man's ungarbage. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> it rings true, though. Absolutely. I mean, it's, and what I like about Jeff, and the TV show was actually pretty good. Like, it's hard to find now because I guess it's been off the air for a while. But when it was on, it was always really interesting and because like he would buy any and I mean anything. And I mean, and what you're talking about was like, Holy cow, you know? And, uh, but I just love that because the the point is you can get rid of someone wants something and you can find that person. It's just a matter of how you're going to find it, but you can find it. And you have to sometimes get creative and, you know, try different tactics out, but it's, it's really interesting. Um, the current
1: scenario where, uh, where we are today, um, with the pandemic and a lot of businesses struggling and stuff, um, bankruptcies and uh, businesses not surviving mm-hmm. this cli- climate, there there will always be a need for, um, you know, what are you spending your money on. Um, do you want to spend four thousand dollars on an item for your home, normal retail, or can you find that item for four hundred dollars elsewhere? So you've saved yourself thirty six hundred dollars. Yep. Um, that's where um maybe stepping back a bit and spending a bit of time to, to look out. You know, wherever there's an appliance, there's an appliance liquidation. Yeah. Wherever there's an item, you know, if you buy a TV at a big box outlet store, a full whack. Somebody has bought it and returned it, and therefore because it was too big or too small, is there a second home like uh, upcycling that that item? Um, you know, do you go out and you buy ten thousand ducks, and then the following day somebody rings you and looks for ten thousand ducks to do a sponsored duck race on a river, a local river? It can happen. Yeah. You know, or are you going to be left with those ten thousand ducks for three, four years? Um, so. I suppose it's um, with with the current climate and, and businesses struggling on paying their rent and paying their employees currently, the tradition of going into a store to buy an item, uh, we're, we're tending to go online. And uh, like, I, 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 I was a prime example a couple of years ago, I bought uh, a nice set of headphones for me for home and I went into a big box outlet store in Vancouver and I spent an hour and a half talking to the gentleman that was there, very helpful. And uh, I still hadn't made up my mind whether I'd buy them. And uh, I went home and I went online and I found them $60 cheaper online than I did right. in his store. So I had used his rent money, his yep. the, the staff that he had that he was paying for to buy that online from somewhere else. So I can understand where um, there's challenges for people that have kind of the bricks and mortar business now. But the whole liquidation, you know, finding a deal on something is, I think, ingrained in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, ingrained in, and different cultures are different. Like the, um, you know, and talking to uh, talking to different uh, people from different backgrounds, people by people. But I also know that talking to a certain culture my conversation in relation to price is going to go somewhere different than talking to somebody from Ireland or from Canada or from Iran or the Lebanon or, you know, so each country or each background has a different way to approach negotiation. And if you can bear that, mind, bear that point in mind that I, I mentioned earlier on, that if both sides are still happy with the end result, then Jeff has made money, the, company, the customer has saved money customer is happy jeff is happy then they'll come back you know so that's um that's taught me a lot and even um you know in the the current scenario i'm doing uh i'm doing a lot of work sourcing some medical products for the COVID 19 pandemic that's going on at the moment and that that falls in under um two categories of products that we're looking at and one are the personal protective equipment the face masks and um, that are, are required there's a, a world shortage of reliable sources at reasonable prices now for, the, for that equipment there's also the COVID-19 the rapid test kits that are that will test for antibody levels in a person and um, the art of negotiation that both sides are happy that people aren't profiteering in relation to supplying the market and um, that there are several instances that I've come across in the last few weeks of illegal operations happening within that market with uh, false companies offering um, products from overseas that don't exist. Uh, I have had a, a consignment of medical gloves uh, offered to me um, where the prospectus and the quote were legit. Um, the, the factory and the address and the details were legit but the factory itself didn't belong to a medical supplier, didn't belong to a glove manufacturer. So without the person on the ground in that particular country to go and physically check the address to say whether this is legit or not, um, that person, that medical supplier in Europe could have bought that and, and lost his money, lost mm-hmm. his shirts. Um, so the art of negotiation there, you know, that every single player in a legitimate supply chain deserves to be able to make a living is an important point that I'm bringing with me from Jeff into that negotiation. That, you know, you have introduced me to that particular person. It's a reliable, sound supply chain. It may be more money than what is normally uh, made available to that medical market. But uh, the legitimacy of that supply route and people on the ground protecting that order, following it through and helping it through, the logistics of getting it to the market where the uh, people in the healthcare industry need that and require that is quite important. And that's, you know, th- that's as a direct result of working with Jeff and having that um, that mindset around the art of negotiation. Um, but also proving that, you know, if something looks too good to be true, it is too good to be true, right? There's no way that, you know, certain products can be manufactured at the price that has been offered well then that's it you know and um, if somebody has gone bankrupt it's different yeah. you know a bankruptcy agent may offer stock that's physically existing there at um a percentage in the dollar uh, below what it would cost to make that's that's one thing but um and i suppose the you know my background in the medical supply business back in ireland and the uk is still is still playing with me now, or still part of me now? Is what can I do to help this current scenario? And um, will I make a fortune in what I'm doing now, sourcing these medical products? Absolutely not. And um, will I help uh, secure products into those markets? Yes, I will. So, um, in a, in my small way, what can I do to give back in this in this current scenario? So that's what's what's going on at the moment.
0: Yeah. It's funny, I just wanted to, you you mentioned <clears throat> you mentioned it a couple times. I just wanted to touch on it because it's really interesting with dealing with people. You're better off, not like you said, you don't want to gouge someone. You want people to walk. You want both parties walking away happy. And that's such a brilliant example of just having an understanding of playing the long game because that's what it is. You can make more money off somebody and and have a happy, someone coming back happily if you're you know you're decent with them and you you know all that is all going on really nicely but if they you're going to make more money off them coming back again and again cuz they will come back cuz people never forget how you make them feel well, you know
1: uh, and as i said like people do buy people and people yeah. buy the service and the, you know it's not the products you know in the liquidation business like in Jeff's business you could go in and see a piece of furniture you could go in and see uh, a piece of taxidermy Yep. You could go in and see that 11 foot giraffe. Um, you could see a returned watch from Costco, <laughs> uh, from a big box outlet store. Uh, you could, you know, there's a multitude of products there. Um, if, you are, if you're kidding out your new home, so you can afford to do one room every couple of months. So I'll go in and I'll buy the bedroom furniture at a discounted price. And then when you come around to having the money and the ability to do your dining room, um, that you keep coming back. Um, are you going back for price or are you going back for service? I believe you're going back for the person. You're going back for the experience that you, uh, that you were looked after and you were cared for, and that you got a deal. So, um, and that's the long game. Like banks are forever trying to hook you in to signing up with them early on. So your university, your student bank account, the chances of you leaving the bank once you're in, uh, they have you until you've retired. You know, so like that's um and that's where the service element to people buying people is important. And that, you know, and that's where you can see good salespeople, their skill set is you could sell a car one day, you could sell bread the next day, you could sell you're not selling the product, you're yep. selling yourself and you're selling the relationship that you've built up with that person. And that's where honesty and um, in that game. Is such like I, I will tell somebody how much we've paid for an item. You know, we paid a hundred dollars for that. That's why we're looking for $120. You know, so that also secures in that negotiation the chances of somebody offering me less than a hundred for that item. Psychologically, people will feel less happy to add if I've said to them that we've paid a hundred psychologically they're less likely to offer me less than 100 so i've secured that at least i'm making some money or i don't have to go with thank you very much for the kind offer but unfortunately it's below our cost you know so you know i'm not a registered charity here Mm -hmm. so therefore we can't sell it to you rather than saying you know go away get out yeah and you never know you never know what's going on in somebody's life yeah so if if somebody comes in and that hundred dollar item somebody offers me 50 dollars for it now, I may feel aggrieved that somebody's just offered me half the cost on an item, but I don't know financially how that person is sitting. You know, is it their last $50? Is it um, that they need that, um, but they also need to pay a bill that's just come in? I don't know the backstory. And that goes back to what my grandmother said to me when I was seven. She said, there's no front door in Ireland without a story behind it, In, <laughs> So who are you to judge anyone? You know, you don't know what's going on in other people's lives. So... Instead of me getting angry at that, um, that offer of $50, I can then turn around and say, look, unfortunately, I can't sell it below what we paid for it. But there may be other options. And therefore, can we look at this? Can we look at that? Can we look at the other? And again, that's building a relationship with that person that they don't feel looked down on. Like the, every, every single person in life is the same. you know, And whether their financial wallet is different than somebody else's that doesn't change the fact that they're a human and it doesn't change the fact um, that uh, you're building that relationship up with them. So you never know in 10 years time, they could have won the lottery and come back and, and they kid out the rest of it.
0: Yeah. Well, I know for us, like that, that's how we know you is through the, the working at the liquidation shop. And well, most of the time we call you before we go because <laughs> we want to see you. And if you're not there, uh, like if we just happen to be around, uh, we, we don't usually buy stuff if you're not there, you know, we, we go there for you and, uh, you know, obviously we, we like the stuff that you guys have and whatnot, but pri- the primary reason that we go is to see you. It's, it's your, we, we buy into you and we know you and, you know, and, and you can't underestimate the power of that relationship.
1: Well, you know, it's, that I, I think is important and it's part of, a. Uh Maybe the way that people are brought up. And um, the, my, my father, for instance, bought uh, a car from uh, a dealership in Tullamore in Ireland. And then he subsequently bought every single car that he bought from the same bloke. Yeah. And he moved with him car dealerships. There you go. Right, so the, the salesperson left one dealership, went to the next, went to the next, went to the next. But over the years, my dad always went looking for him rather than the make or model of car or the garage. Uh, and that was that he trusted that person. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you have a feeling of trust, you know, that that conversation, look, I paid $100 for it, I need $150 for it, because everyone has the right to make a living. There are bills, there are wages, There are um, and it's, it, is, it is the banter, and it is the human interaction with people. And again, people by people. And the art of negotiation is that both sides of the, the argument are happy. Um that's where people can keep coming back and they um but it is a human interaction and I will go to to stores and I I have a tendency to deal with the same people that I I deal with um from a from a business point of view that can become um that can become a challenge that if you have a sales force where only a certain a certain customers will only come to deal with one person in your organization and you're paying for four or five people to do the same role in the organization. That can become a challenge. Um, But that's where that philosophy of people by people, where you can step in then. So if you came to the store and I wasn't there, that Matthew or Jeff or whatever could step into that shoes and therefore realize that the art of negotiation is that both sides are happy so can we give or can we, you know, and there's cert- certain deals that there's no movement on and there's certain deals that you can you can move on. Um, and it's, I suppose, uh,
0: protecting the relationship,
1: yeah. But it's nice to hear that you come to say no.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah, I know with the, and that's kind of a, an idea I've been flirting a bit with lately, not just in business, my business being this podcast and, and going into a law career, but just in general, you know, having, I guess the, I guess the forethought to consider. You know how you because de- uh, I guess the politically incorrect way of saying what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to be less of a dickhead, and so the best way to do that is you know trying to kind of consider m- more, consider where that person's coming from a little bit more than I normally would. Because I think it's good practice, and either way, you you, because I'm kind of crass, and and I can be a bit to the point to the fact where it rubs people the wrong way, and sometimes it's good, and most of the time it's not very helpful, and and it's one of those things I keep thinking about is I can be an ass to you right now, or I can just ease back a bit and kind of maintain a little bit of that comfort, or at least not being so harsh with someone. And that way, you're less likely to run into trouble further on down the road. You know, just considering where people are coming from and and just being a little more gentler with how you handle situations and people, I mean, it's not a bad thing.
1: Well, I'd suggest that your, your most important client when you get your law degree is your first one. Yeah. And because, you know, you do a good job, whether they're innocent or guilty, um, you do a good job with the client guilty. and then it's all referral <laughs> it's, but you know that's kind of how Yeah. Um, I was treated with respect I was treated with love therefore you know uh, they have a relative or a family friend or yeah, whatever further just, uh, down the road that they need legal advice and therefore okay Marcus looked after me back then when I was in difficulty I'll go back and I'll look him up now and that's where that that whole thing is that relationship building is, is, is good I, I would suggest that I'd say 95% of people that interact with me in the liquidation world have a positive experience. I, I have had to uh, apologize to a proportion of customers over the years um, that you can catch me on a bad day. You can, yeah, catch, of course. Me, you can catch me on the, the $100 cost and the $50 uh, offer. I can lose it some days. I can say like, "How dare you?" In my head, "How dare you <laughs> offer below what Jeff paid for that?" Therefore, do you not realize that we need to make money here to be able to pay my wages, to be able to pay for the mortgage, to be able to pay the tax and the property tax? And I can I can react differently now. If I can if I can uh, react in a positive way, and that sometimes is by pausing, right? So yep. if somebody has made me. Uh, a derogatory offer in my opinion again based on the fact that I don't know what their background is if I can if I can relax a minute and then come out with unfortunately I can't accept that because it's below what we paid for it right then that's a that's a a nice human interaction but I'm not I'm not succumbing to that offer if I turn around and say get out and never come back again then they go home and they talk and say I can't believe that I was treated with that disrespect and therefore I'm never going back and that's where you have that one interaction can affect that relationship going forward. So therefore, your next room or your next purchase is not going to happen at that business. And that's where, you know, people are people, right? And some days you're, you're better at managing your life than others, right? Um, or you get, a, you get a bad phone call or you get a, an interaction that's offsetting um, or off-putting and then straight away, You're put in a scenario where you don't have the ability to pause and then your reaction is different, right? So go away, you Mm -hmm. know, get out of my, get out of my face. Like, you know, and you, I can go there. I can, um, I used to joke with Jeff that there was no argument I wouldn't lose. (laughs) But he would point out that if he had an argument with every customer over the years in relation to price that he wanted to have that argument with, he'd have no customers. That's right. Right. So if you... And there are tricks and there are kind of the the introduction of humor into a conversation is such cheap as I can't even afford to, um, you know, buy a pair of socks that don't have a hole in it. Or I'm looking for enough money today to get the jam for my bread, butter and jam sandwich. <laughs> you know, so like it's or I'll leave you with five dollars. Like another thing that I was taught was never take the last person's dollar. So if somebody opens their wallet and they're paying twenty dollars and they only have twenty dollars in it. Give them a dollar back. Just superstition that you're not taking the last. But that transaction, that the fact that you've handed a dollar back to somebody, that can sit with somebody and therefore, okay, do I go back to Ian or do I go to somebody else? Oh no, I'll go back to Ian because he gave me that dollar back that day. So it's so again, like the if I can if I can remember to deal with everyone with respect, then the tendency is that I'm I'm treated with respect um and not everyone like not everyone is appropriate to everyone every single minute of yeah, the day. Of course well, I've been inappropriate to people and I have been on the receiving end of that. Um and you know there there have been instances where like a customer's got in my face and pushed me or you know what I mean and it's you know but that's <laughs> that, you know that that's um that's shocking behavior on that person's part. But I can't control that person. Correct. Um and I can only control my, my outcome, and I do owe people out there an apology for some of the interactions that I've had with them. Absolutely, I do. Um, but I try and reduce that, and I and that's where it's very hard to get disrespectful with somebody if you've built up a nice relationship with them. You know, so somebody's having a bad day, somebody's having a good day, or I'll offer this, or I'll offer that. No, I can't accept that today. But or look, you're buying that at one hundred and fifty dollars. The next time you come back in for the next product, we'll try and figure out something different because we had no movement on that price. So respect and if I respect and love. If I can see everyone, I don't have to like everyone. Of course. But if I can respect everyone, then my day goes a hell of a
0: lot smoother. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, when in doubt, maintain ethical integrity. You know, absolutely. that's that's kind of like a good default. Cause even the the hundred dollar product for the fifty dollar offer scenario, even if it turns out, okay you know, no deal is to be made, but you're honest with that person. You go, Hey, look, you know, I paid a hundred for it. I really can't give it away for anything less. That person goes, okay, well I only got the 50, so no deal to be made. That person leaves, but they're far more likely to come back to see you again for something unreal. You know, maybe the same product or a different product that they're looking for because they know that you treated them honestly the first time, you know, and, and they're certainly more likely to come back. Yeah, and you know, I also a,
1: I also have a duty of care to my employer. Like I, yeah. I have a duty of care to Jeff to say uh,
0: Jeff needs
1: to make money to keep his business going and to be profitable to pay for all the people that are working for him to pay for the overheads to pay for the stock um, to be able you know how many families are reliant on that one business to feed themselves to to get themselves to work to to clothe themselves. So there is a duty of care for the from the, from my point of view as a working with jeff to to try to secure the most money i can for the item that i can for him you know so it's uh, so respecting the customer but also respecting the position that you're you're put in, in an organization
0: mm-hmm. and i mean and if you're acting honestly and and respectfully most of the time it's not too difficult to achieve both of those goals yeah you know it's, it's pretty decent and so yeah, one of the things that's really interesting, obviously, you know, you're selling people, right? You're selling two people, you're not selling a product, you're selling yourself. So when it comes to just so when you have a sale, I guess we don't I don't want you to give away too many of your tricks, but well, and even calling them tricks, I guess, gives a bad connotation. You're just you're just trying to understand you want to understand where someone's coming from, you want to understand what their drives are and 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 what they want and what makes them happy. And I imagine I mean, if you want to give up any, any details, that'd be good. But I guess, I suppose in my head, I guess you would be focusing a lot more on what they aren't saying, you know, body language and, and maybe picking up on keywords to kind of understand, okay, like what's this person kind of looking for and how can I, how can I best serve that individual based on their needs? Cause everybody's different, of course.
1: What, one of my, one of my weaknesses, uh, is that i don't always listen (laughs) and i i kind of jump to a solution sure without really listening to somebody so i'm conscious of that and it's something that i i am aware of so it's something that i work on on a daily basis have i actually understood what the person has asked me for Um, before any interaction with any product, like I, I will turn around, Jeff will buy a container in, or he'll buy a deal in, and it'll come in the door, and, and the first question I'll have to him is, how much did you spend on that? So I have it in my head, I would think for numbers, and I would think my memory is very good. So I'll remember, like he paid $50 for that, he paid $60 for that, he paid $90 for that. And then the, the item is priced in the store. I'll also have a discussion and a thought process into what is the lowest price uh, can be accepted for that particular item there. So I'll, I'll have already had a discussion with myself right in relation to like a coffee table or that 11 foot giraffe. like what are we asking for? What is our bottom line? And therefore I'm not going below that, but I'm trying to maximize the difference between the two. And uh, so with that in mind, if you go in and with the ability to walk away from an offer, then you're okay right it's that 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 particular item is worth that and therefore i'm not letting it go at any cheaper that's the goal now some days it's it's easier to do that than others um but if you if you understand and you remember and you've done the work on it then like people will have certain people have different negotiation styles so I got, I've I've dealt with a customer that will walk around the store and ask a price on every single item on what's your lowest <laughs> price on that and what's your lowest price on that and then do a second lap and say, Oh, you said fifty dollars on that. When you hadn't you had said seventy-five. Yeah. But it's a trick to say, Oh, okay, yeah, no, fifty is good. Yeah. Okay. The, so that's the and there are people that like that. That will yeah. go there there's one customer he, he made seven different journeys in um, and <laughs> in relation to five dollars. In relation to a twin mattress. Now we Google mapped his address of where he lived and the petrol money or the gas money that he had used to save the five dollars. It didn't it didn't equate. Wow. So he'd driven in he'd driven in several times to try to get that five dollar discount. Um but there was no point selling it to him at five dollars. Like that's there's mar you have higher margin on certain products than on others. So it's knowing that and being able to to convey that in a in a nice way. And it makes for an easier day. Like yeah. If, um, but there are there are customers. Like I, I have one customer in mind, just as you, you were asking the question earlier on. And depending on the time of day that that customer will come in, I will turn around and ask them to come back the following day. I don't have the physical or emotional capacity to deal with that person. You know, I'm too tired. It's, you know, 10 to six. You're going to, any anything I'm gonna say, you're gonna half it, and then you're gonna half it again. <laughs> and then a percentage of that figure you may offer me. I don't have the emotional or mental capacity at the moment to talk to you. So would you mind coming back? And and it works. And that you know, that's the respect there. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. And if if I interact with him, that's where the respect goes out the window and you get out and every time you come in here and you're low balling me and everything and So I have to figure out a way to work with that person, you know, and, and we have, you know, some days are better than others, but that he still comes back and that's where the relationship is built up and the trust is built up between the two of us that, okay, I'm going to say it as it is. I'm going to
0: call it as it is. I
1: can only deal with you when I'm, when I'm not tired.
0: Yeah. So, well, that's, I mean, that's such a, that's a very nuanced idea that, because you have to have such, that's the difference between being good and great is having that ability to understand that. I mean, you've built up that relationship. You understand how you operate. You understand how that person operates. And also, you know, not being, you know, it almost may seem, you know, counterintuitive to walk, to tell someone to leave and come back. Yeah. Obviously, if you're not, you know, you're not being rude about it, of course. But but having that ability to have that understanding of, Okay, you know, based on X amount of factors right now, I don't see this working out in the best way. But come back tomorrow. And, and, and that, again, there's that counterintuitiveness where you're telling someone to leave, but, but you're not. No, but you're doing, again, you
1: know. that's, that's one example of mm-hmm. one interaction that I've had. And one customer, like it would be counterintuitive to, to, a customer walks in the door of a liquidation firm looking for something or not looking for anything. And they walk around the store and they leave without buying anything. That for me is like a perishable good that if they've come in looking for a mattress and they don't buy it from me and they go to another big box store and they buy that mattress, they're not going to be back for that item right. for another seven to eight years. All right? So if have we lost the interaction there? Have we lost that sale? Have we lost the ability of that sale? Um, in our Have we interacted with the customer to inform them that it's not just what we have available in front of them. It's a whole uh, catalog of items that are available online or are you looking for something specific that you don't see here we might be able to source it for you you know so it's that interaction to to tell somebody to come back uh, would be absolutely counterintuitive right um but in that scenario that person is coming back they need the they need the product and they need a healthy interaction with us and they know that their negotiation style and my negotiation style we're like hitting like two Tauruses, two bulls in a China mm-hmm. shop. and um, so that interaction works good for us. And you know, and, and in fairness to that that gentleman, he started coming in early in the morning now there rather you
0: than go. late
2: at night. So, <laughs> so he learned kinda, too. <laughs> he's learning too, you know.
1: And it's easier. I, yeah. I leave happy, he leaves happy, and Jeff leaves happy because there's money in the till. Instead of, you know, I'm not buying anything ever again and I'm not coming back to the store. Mm-hmm.
0: Um I need a toilet break so yeah so we got a little bit of time left so i I wanted to get you on a couple quick things and uh, and then we'll wrap it up um so with working at the liquidation shop if anyone can find the show i mean i know for for my listeners who who are in the uk it might be a bit tough but it was a pretty fun show if you you guys can get a hold of it but it's it's available in
1: uh i think it's 169 countries now really Uh, is it really it's oln in uh in canada and right. also city tv do the reruns oh, okay it's been yeah. taken onto a network in um in the states as well wow uh, so yeah Good so it is available so if oh, it, the awesome. liquidator is the name of the show yeah so, it's a yeah.
0: was it six six seasons or five
1: five seasons yeah, yeah. so over a hundred episodes yeah. yeah so it was uh it was interesting
0: now you're not in the show much though are you
1: i i joined him uh at the tail end of season three when he was filming oh okay. season three sure so i uh, I pop in and out of season four a bit. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh,
0: yeah. Cool. Okay. Nice. So people can find you, find you here on the podcast, and then find you a bit on that show, which is I good. Never know. And so there were a couple of deals I, I just wanted to to get you on because they're just kind of funny. So the first one was um, uh, some big sex toy shipments that Jeff got a hold of see this all depends now on how you you, you have your description of it
1: yeah, I have yeah. uh, adult entertainment equipment the, oh okay uh, there you go yeah, oh very educational, PC. yeah I like that yeah so just a different uh, different take on it it's interesting when you do have sex stores uh, for sale in the in our store yeah um, the the fact that you have to hide them uh, because you know we have families and we're yeah a family exactly. orientated business um but, you know, some of us out there, um, you know, when we have them in, our security on the items goes through the roof. Um, so funny. It's the most robbed item in the store. Uh, people are embarrassed to pay for something, so they'll end up taking it. Yeah. Uh, so when we think we're making a load of <laughs> money selling uh, this adult education equipment, um, we, we actually, we don't know all the time. But, um, and one of the, I've, I've been asked what uh, in the past what the, the weirdest thing I've ever done for Jeff is, and it's probably tidying up one day um, <laughs> so there was a, while, while one of those um, items was or one of the deals was in the store, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, one of the ladies that works with me, asked me to go in and have a look at the changing room. Um, Oh, so I, I went into that particular changing room and uh, I left, it looked fine and I, I left and um, I went back to the, the lady in question I said, you know, the, what's going on? Uh, uh, Ian, there's something behind the piece of art that was in the changing room. So somebody had used one of the, the toys um, and had decided to, to leave it in the store. Oh. Um, so that's, you know, <laughs> as, I was, as, as I was doing that gloved up and, and removing said item, uh, Jeff rang me uh, to ask how, how we were doing in, <laughs> in the till that day. Um, so I, I just turned around to him and said, you know, uh, you're really going to need to leave me alone now. I'm doing something in your store for you <laughs> that I don't want to ever have to experience again. So that's kind of my, my take on it. Um, we've had some funny uh, some funny instances where we've gone in, or Jeff has gone in to buy the contents of a, an adult education store. And... Then we send a colleague of ours to go and collect the contents afterwards. Um, so we sent a, a young kid, 18 or 19 at the time. Oh, perfect. Uh, to go and get a load of uh, encyclopedia uh, <laughs> and books uh, to bring back to the store. And then we gave him the address for the sex store. Oh, so he stood outside love for about it. a half an hour going, am I in, in the right place or am I not? So, you know, a bit of humor there. Oh, that's and fantastic. Going, going, getting, but yeah, the most, um, our security level goes up. Um, the and people's opinions of it uh, are different. You know, yeah. It's uh, but yeah, quite uh, quite something. I don't miss seeing an adult sex uh toy in, not in the store. Yeah. So it's uh, but yeah, some funny some funny times. There.
0: God, I'm just biting my tongue so hard. Although, yeah. oh, oh, so many jokes have he had. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because like how you said, you'd have to because you know, yet families coming in too. So selling that stuff is also problematic. It's a little more challenging than. You know, you know. Um, it's uh, discreet.
1: Uh, so, mm-hmm. like we put um, we put bags in. It. We we zoned off a particular area. Uh, we put uh, non see through bags. Uh, so if somebody did want to buy a toy and bring it to the counter without their children or without a family member seeing it, uh, that they can put it in um, uh, a closed bag and bring it to the counter, and then we discreetly uh, charge them for it. Um, and maybe change the, the description on the bill for them in you know, you bought a, a device rather than a, a sex toy. Uh, yeah. It's a on, back
0: massager. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
1: You know, so it's, um, so if people can, can shop it in a discreet way. Yeah. Then it, it seemed to work for us. Um, yeah. So
0: that's awesome. So funny. And the, the other one, which was my, I remember when my family popped into the shop yeah. and, uh, Man, we had a very serious discussion about buying this particular product. And it was a shipment that you guys got from, I, I, I'm not sure on the details, you correct me on it, but it, from my memory, it was a furniture that was in a shipping container, which was yeah. busted at the port for marijuana. trying to, yeah, yeah. Uh, so before, smuggling marijuana. Before it was
1: legal in, uh, in Canada, um, there was 96 pieces of high-end leather furniture. Uh, in a shipping container um, that the the gentleman tried to smuggle um, drugs in Uh, and so it was seized, it would have been given back then to the manufacturer, the manufacturer didn't want the the 96 pieces back Uh, it did smell oh it reeked it reeked so for about about 3 or 4 weeks um, walking into uh, direct liquidation uh, it it was walking into like somebody was smoking it. Teaching yeah, Chong's house. <laughs> yeah, but it. You know what? For for a leather sofa set, and I can understand why you looked at it. Oh. It was probably the most comfortable leather sofa Beautiful. That was ever made. White I mean, leather. Yeah, oh. it was made by a made by a company here in Burnaby. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a locally made uh, business. Um, the the funny one that I have uh, in relation to that, like it, it was like a lemon color like a creamy lemon color leather and I I saw it and I said no it wouldn't be my cup of tea and then I sat on it and I went okay no actually me my <laughs> cup of tea um, the, my funniest encounter with that was a a lady in her 90s uh, came in and wanted it uh, she had some mobility issues and wanted to buy a sofa from me uh, that she the length of the sofa was such that she could lie out and if she wasn't able to get up um, she felt comfortable on it. It was long enough for her to lie out totally. And, um, and that was it. Now, she was in her 90s. So, like, the, the people buy people. And um, so I'm going, how many family members did she have lower than 90? So I asked her to contact her daughter. And could I talk to her daughter? And I said, look, your mum is here. She's looking to buy a marijuana leather sofa. <laughs> she really loves it. It's kind of a lemon colour it's not everyone's cup of tea in relation to the colour. It's a beautiful sofa, but it does smell of marijuana. I just want to let you know, because I don't want social media days. Yeah, yeah. Ian, the Irish fella, has sold a 90-year-old <laughs> a marijuana sofa and has taken her old age pension to buy this. Right. So the daughter arrived back in with the, with the mother, and her daughter arrived back in with the mother, and their, their son arrived back in. So there was four generations of one family <laughs> in looking to buy this sofa. So the mother bought it, the daughter bought a love seat on the sofa, there and the grandson go. bought a chair. So like three generations out of four, the one family bought one of these marijuana pieces. It's
0: fantastic. And the, other,
1: the other one then was a training company on the island uh, would invite people to come for a training session uh, for three, three or four days uh, and have 40 people on each training session. And they bought 23 of these chairs in one go to have in their training facility so that people could sit comfortably while while listening to this and uh, so we did sell a lot of them to to marijuana smokers you know what's the the smell if you smoke at home yeah it's going to start in in anyway anyway <laughs> um, but that lady buying the four generations of one family coming in to check the um, but just proves you know you respect somebody you and you've got three sales instead of one.
0: Oh, well, exactly. You know? yeah. What, yeah, one one phone call made by you resulted in yeah. multiple sales just like that. Yeah. yeah. I still wish we would have got it after the fact. That was oh man, that was it was it was. I remember it was the white leather, and it had like this the studs, like yeah. the the little metal studs on. It. Oh man, that was a good one. Too quite, bad. Quite nice. Yes. Live and learn, I guess. Right. <laughs> so um, yeah, to close it out, um, one of the other. Businesses that you're involved with is a construction uh, yeah. company, so uh, I'll let you introduce that. Tell us about that. Okay, yeah, no, it's a it's a company called Lincoln
1: Block, and uh, I first came across it in March um, last year, and they're based in Lake Stevens in Washington State in the United States, and um, this is where uh, you know people by people and in uh, integrity of the the person. It it was. Um, to sum it up, uh, we found a solution for affordable, sustainable housing. And that was uh, with the introduction of a six inch uh, wooden block, so which has an interior and an external wall, internal and external wall on one. And it's, it's put together like uh, blocks. So you put one on top of each other and you can build a house. Um, so it was patented uh, on the 17th of March, 2015, this particular uh, product by a gentleman by the name of John Venturo, um, the founder of Lincoln Block. And the story behind this this invention was John broke his back several years ago. So he was 40 years in the lumber uh, business and construction business. And his grandfather, um, he hails from New Jersey in uh, in the States. And his grandfather, grandfather Joe, grand, Grandpa Joe, uh, built skyscrapers in New York for years, and would have had the the discussion with his son, John, that the only way to get to an affordable house solution back then is to build a house with block. So if you can figure out how to do a less expensive block, then you can put the, um, the mission statement for Lincoln block is to give the ability for any human being, any person to afford the luxury of owning a home um, so i i was introduced the march last year and they needed to do some further work on getting a structural engineering report completed and that's where myself and uh, a business partner here in canada invested in lincoln block and in Jan- january 15th 2020 we opened up lincoln block build canada uh, inc so there's a canadian arm to that business now um, to give you an example, like March last year, um, I visited a home uh, down in the States. Uh, it was 896 square feet. It was built in eight days by two people. And the lady who built it, um, uh, she, uh, her bill for that build was 42,000 US dollars. So when I heard that and I saw it, the first thing I did when I saw the house I heard the maths behind it and I heard the, the price behind it. I got out of the car and I physically touched the house as if, you know, if I touch it and it falls over, yeah. like is, it, <laughs> is it there at that price point? But what got me was the integrity of that gentleman who had brought the, patented that product. Um, he's upselling, like he's using a product, um, utility lumber. Um, so he's upcycling wooden product that's destined for pallets or fu- fu- fuel pellets. Um, so we're taking that lumber and we're regrading it and creating through a mill process a block that can be built. So it takes the, the need or the necessity for you to have a construction background to build your own home away. So any person with uh, a hammer, uh, a spirit level uh, and some common sense can put a house together. So it's giving that ability back at an affordable rate. Um it's also um because we're we're using a natural resource wood um it's sustainable um and uh the the discussion back in march last year was is it would somebody have the ability to buy a house and pay it off as quickly as they could pay off a car loan so i thought of uh, both my own scenario where i had um purchased a home in Canada and took out a mortgage that's um, quite big uh, and uh, a multiple of my salary. So how many years will I need to work to be able to pay off that house or that home? Um, in that scenario where uh, an 896 square foot home uh, in the States was built for $42,000, if you had a family uh, with two incomes coming in 40,000 by two people, that's 20,000 each over a five-year period. That's $4,000 a year. Could you build a home and pay it off on a line of credit? Could you, um, could you p- build your home on the deposit money that you needed to put down to get a mortgage for half a million uh, to buy a property elsewhere? So to give you an example, like to build a laneway home in North Burnaby, it's $475,000 to put a home on a plot of land that's already here to put that same spec of house on a laneway home in North Burnaby would be between 40 and 50,000 to, to build that. So um, I got interested in it insofar as uh, could we offer a, a product to the public uh, to combat the affordable housing crisis that we have, um, not just in Canada, but across several uh, jurisdictions. Um, and We have been approached by, um, we've done several installations to date. We've been approached by a homeless charity in Seattle to build um, over 40 units for homeless women in Seattle. So not only would they have the home, we're also working with a construction company to um, skill those, uh, those ladies out. And that potentially they have employment afterwards. So that not only are they uh, going into secured uh, living, that they would also have a, a trade associated with that so that an income would come in going forward. We've looked at it uh, from the possibility of um, having the block available anywhere in the world, this block can be made as long as it's a wooden mill. Uh, so for disaster relief efforts, that if we know that a tsunami is gonna hit a certain country in six months time, that we would have the the ability to have that Lincoln block there on site, ready to go when, uh, when a, a building or a structure comes down. Um, also, the fact that not only is it a, a, a cheaper way of doing it, um, it, it works out to be about $5 a lineal foot to build a house. Um, and to give you an example, on that $42,000 example that I gave you in Lake Stevens, um, we asked another contractor how much his cost of sales on that particular build would have been. And his estimates were 52000 for his cost of sale before he would put on his labor and his margin on that build. And um, The time it takes to put one of these together, you could put that home together with three people in three days. Wow. So your labor costs <laughs> going down. now. At the time that I was introduced to them, I went back to Ireland. And I looked at a build that was local to where my parents live in, in Dunerian, in Ireland. And that particular house took 11 months to build. Yeah. <laughs> whereas the same build, the same spec of house would have taken a week, two weeks maximum. Um, so it's a, it's a very exciting project. There are, it's because it's patented and because it's an internal and an external wall made of wood, uh, we need to do some work with the International Coding Council to make sure that from a construction point of view, that every architect and every engineer, structural engineer out there, knows the capabilities of the block and the limitations of the block. So how big a structure can we build with it? If we go up four floors, what's the implication to the structure of the block? Um, The first one that I saw, the first installation of this that I saw, was put together by John, who had had the broken back and his uh, granddaughter. Wow, so the two of them put together and solved a solution that he had for his family to house his mother. Um, so uh, it's an exciting one. It's an exciting project, and it's it's probably a culmination of all of the the different tips that I've got through my work career. So the background in the medical device uh, business, the background with Jeff, um, you know that every item, you know, is there a niche to um, for the product? Is it solving a solution and is there the ability to give control back to the consumer to be able to build that at an affordable uh, price and ultimately not to be straddled with a mortgage for life, but to have, so therefore being able to make life decisions about I I have a home and especially in this set of circumstances where we have the pandemic at the moment, you know, one of the biggest stresses that people have on their on their well-being at the moment is their ability to pay their rent or their mortgage bill every month so if that wasn't on their agenda um, then does it lead to better life choices Mhm.
0: yeah that's so, that's fantastic yeah, so lincoln block yeah
1: yeah coming to a, a neighborhood
0: near you soon yeah yeah and and one of the things that I jump to right away hearing you talk about that is certainly the downtown east side of Vancouver for people who don't know. I'm gonna have a guest come in and, and talk about that in the future. Um, but downtown East Side's an area known for high instances of drug use, mental illness and lots of homelessness and it's it's pretty bad. It's a pretty bad situation. And um you know, when I hear something like this, you know, talking about of you know affordable uh, housing for just your average person, um, but certainly, you know, it's a hopefully could be a phenomenal way to help, yeah, like I mean, you were talking about in Seattle. Yeah, you know, and it, you know
1: that that model can be replicated in any jurisdiction. I mm-hmm. mean, ultimately, you know, Western civilization, it's the price of land is the is the uh, the factor yeah. that gets a, in a lot of a lot of way or the barrier to entry in the housing market is the price of land not the price of the build right um but the housing crisis like there, there are certain jurisdictions in the world that are 50,000 60,000 units behind where they should be to to deal with the homeless crisis to deal with um you know what's the percentage of the world population living in poverty right um there, there's poverty everywhere. I don't care whether you're in a Western civilization or whether you're in a, uh, in a different jurisdiction. Um, we need to find a solution that's sustainable. We need to find a solution that's quick, easy and long-lasting. Uh, that there's no point in putting up a shack that's going to need to be replaced in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so to give somebody a high-quality build quickly and affordably is the goal. Uh, and not to straddle them with debt. So therefore, if they medically, further down the road, if they can't work, they're not worried about having to go to work to be able to repay the mortgage or the threat of losing their family home. Um, there's also like the, um, one of the areas that I hadn't thought of, but one of the groups that has a, a, come to me looking for a quote for a project that they're doing on Vancouver Island is six friends have come together and said if we communally bought a parcel of land on the island, could we build six homes, one for each of us, and then build six more units where they could potentially have a rental income for each family going forward? Oh, wow. So an Airbnb. So uh, that they have that um, and that they build a a cottage community around that uh, particular build on the island and secure revenue going forward for them as six families to, to, to be able to back away from their nine to five grind in a their work career and to be able to enjoy island life with a sustainable way forward there with no debt over their heads in relation to a mortgage so that was one one project that we're working on there's another project that we're working on um, in relation to housing for addiction and uh, this particular uh, group of people that have asked us to quote for uh Already have some uh, housing in place for um, addicts and for the for addiction, and one of their concerns is their high level of maintenance costs on keeping these unit these units together. Now, with a wooden interior, interior interior wall and a wooden exterior wall, you can't damage the the product. So, if somebody decides to throw an item against the wall, there's no damage. You're you're not going in to so your maintenance costs on the upkeep of the properties are lower than they would normally be so it's we're 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 taking a utility lumber that is destined for um like playgrounds or uh, fuel pellets and we're repurposing that to an affordable s- solution where somebody can afford to build their own their own home and not be straddled with debt so that's um, so you you get it, people by people I I bought the integrity of John, the Lincoln Block founder, uh, with his goal of putting that on the market. Um and not letting people um profiteer from it, you know, to say, okay, there's a there's a a cheaper way to do it, but we're still gonna charge full market whack for it. So again, it's it's there's a solution there, the solution is there, um and it's Again, a lot of red tape. We're, we're, we're known as disruptive disruptive technology already. Uh, and that's where, you know, if we can do it cheaper and quicker uh, and longer lasting, then the more traditional methods of building at the moment, um, where you can't control the costs. Like if, if you go to a builder, you're taking you're taking your life in your own hands in relation to what the final bill is going to be for that build. Whereas if you control it and you've bought the component parts that are there and you've put it together, then you you have a fairly accurate uh, starting point of what exactly it's going to cost you to build this and put it in place.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah I love that. Well, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, ethical integrity, you know, that's you know, just it.
1: Yeah, it people buy people. Yeah. So if you can... You know, the, if there's a need and there's a solution, everyone in everyone in the in getting that solution to somebody can profit from yeah. it. Um, you don't need to profiteer from it, but everyone can make a living from putting a solution in place, and that's where um, people buy people and people people trust people. You know, would would my lawyer have um, uh, patted me on the back the first day that I I put some money into that business? Absolutely no way. I did it on a handshake. I trusted John. <laughs> yeah. There was no contract in place. I knew that he needed the money to keep going with the structural engineering reporting that he needed to get this product onto market. So I took a chance. I had met him twice. I shook his hand and I trusted him in relation to whether that was the right thing to do. Um, that's integrity. I'm, I, uh, and that goes on both parts. I believed in what he was saying and what he was trying to achieve and i was willing to take the risk with in relation to the money that i had to to invest in that like ultimately i could lose that investment um so but did i trust him i did would the lawyer have trusted him probably not the lawyer would have preferred to have my signature and his signature on a piece of paper to outline that but that wasn't what it was about that was to to keep the project moving along in a way that it could could potentially it, we believe it is a solution for affordable, sustainable housing mm-hmm. on any level. And I could make a 115-square-foot house or I could make a 16,000-square-foot house with the same product. Uh, so it doesn't matter. You, you, can, you can fit any model of this, whether it be social housing, whether it be a family home, whether it be warehousing, whether it be um, uh, equipment for um, tsunamis going forward or humanitarian aid um it's it's there and it is there and it's it's a product that is naturally available uh we're not using any wood that's not already been purposed out of the um, we're recycling it up and um, and again it's uh you know th- there's so many benefits to this i could go on for weeks talking about it Um, but lincoln block uh lincolnblock.com and lincoln block build canada is the canadian entity of that so we're looking forward to the challenges ahead um, but we we believe that we have the solution to affordable, sustainable housing.
0: Great, no, and that's awesome, and and am I'm, I'm happy that you're involved with it too. That's that's it's a good fit for you, yeah. As a person, I and you can very easily tell or hear if you're listening. Um, you know how enthusiastic you are about it, and and I think it's a wonderful project to be involved in. So
1: yeah, I'm very fortunate that uh, John's grandfather turned around to him and had that conversation with him years ago to say if you want to look for a solution for an affordable home, you have to do it in block. And then John breaking his back and not being able to physically do the construction work that you would normally have um, done and then coming up with that solution. So like it's for him to go from that conversation to the eureka moment when he was out fishing to come up with the idea for the block and the pains of getting that to market and the patent process and, you know... Um, Jumping through hoops as disruptive technology to get that product to market has been a huge, huge um, feat for the Ventura family. Yeah, and I'm, I'm delighted to be involved in
0: it.
2: Yeah.
0: Great. Well, that's a good spot to end it. We'll leave it on a high note. So thank you very much for being here. and had a great time with you. Hopefully it was all right for you too. I'm, d- I'm delighted for you. As a <laughs> lawyer, uh, a <Yeah>. podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Been my pleasure being here. Great, right. really, really. Been
0: thank you so much, Ian, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll put the the links up on the podcast as well, so people can check out the Liquidator and and check yeah. out Lincoln Block as well. Perfect. Oh, thanks a lot. Okay, thank cheers, you,
1: Marcus.